Earth. All of you on the good Earth. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 809 for the week of Monday, September 19th, 2016. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Cassie Tamanini, aka Craftless. Welcome Cassie. Ooh, first up. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I gotta say, when uh, we started talking a lot of Mars and asteroids a few years ago, I was really anticipating a show like tonight. So very excited for this one, Sawyer. Oh, it is a really exciting one. Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Ah, pleasure to be here, and I am just as excited about this. Especially excited to hear about everything that went on at KSC over the past week. Oh, there's a lot to fill in on that. But first we have to welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Nothing original here. I did steal this from another podcast, but good generic time of the day. <laughs> so basically my outro except actually summed up a lot more succinctly yes but it doesn't go with our outro music as well so you know alright I'll stick with that but <laughs> before we get to the outro we have to actually start the episode to begin boy do we have a lot to talk about we've got a whole bunch of Mars news but first we are going to summarize what I know you've all been waiting for since the last episode Osiris Rex, or as we called it last time, Tyrannosaurus Rex, <laughs> which we need to trademark. <laughs> oh, my favorite space dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's so many to choose from, so, you know. <laughs> but yes, the Osiris Rex mission successfully launched on its way on September 8th, 2016, aboard an Atlas V 411 configuration, meaning a 4-meter fairing, one solid rocket booster, and a single-engine second stage. That launched right around dusk at about 7.05 p.m. Eastern Time, 23.05 UTC. That brought OSIRIS-REx on its starting mission to meet up with the asteroid Bennu, which it will meet up with in around 2018. Circle around it for a few years. By 2020, it will collect a sample, and that should be back on Earth by 2023. In case you're unaware, I was there representing Talking Space at this past launch, and boy, was that spectacular. I think, honestly, before we go any further, the one thing that we absolutely have to start with is the launch audio. I have not seen a launch with a solid rocket booster on it since STS-135 back in 2011. So it had been quite a while, and I forgot what a solid rocket booster launch feels like, even if it only has one booster. Go ahead and take a listen for yourself.
So despite the windiness that day, as you can probably hear a little bit of, it was absolutely spectacular. I was taking pictures of it, which will be up on the website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com, and it's one of those things where you look through the lens, and all of a sudden you can't see a thing, because it is blindingly bright. This is one of the brightest launches I've seen since probably Orion on EFT-1, and it's spectacular. Those, you know, the Atlas V, and then that booster, and it being right at sunset, it was absolutely spectacular, and couldn't have asked for a better launch. So now, in addition to the launch, there was a whole bunch of other stuff that went on there that was absolutely spectacular. In case you didn't know, NASA always likes to treat the press very well, and they don't just give you the launch, they give you a whole bunch of other things too, including the opportunity to go to press conferences. One thing I do want to play, and I know it's unfortunate that Gene McCulka cannot be here with us tonight, and uh, we're wishing him and his family well at this time, but he mentioned last episode about the plaque that was put aboard OSIRIS-REx in honor of its first P.I. Here the current P.I. discussing how emotional that was and what it means for him and his team is worth a listen. So go ahead and take a listen to this. Today's been a bittersweet moment for me, and, and I'll admit, to uh, as, I was, as I was driving through the Air Force Station on my way to the ASOC, you know, I was, I was alone, I had some time to think, and I really missed him. I mean, he would, he would have been thrilled right now, and... Uh, this would have been a great achievement for him, and uh, I, I wish he was there with me. So uh, that was the deal when he brought me on as a deputy. I was supposed to just handle the science side of the business, and uh, he was going to handle all the administrative stuff, the management. And, uh, uh, you know, we, he had parting words for me about being able to take this team forward and uh, carrying, uh, you know, the torch for the next generation. And he really believed in that. He really believed the reason that we fly these missions as a nation, why we invest in these kinds of endeavors is for the great science, but really for the educational opportunities, the inspirational opportunities. We want people to realize the impossible, uh, to see what you can do uh, creatively, constructively, when people come together dedicated to a program like this, dedicated to, to mission success. And I mentioned the thousands of people who have worked on this, and uh, it's, it's the human spirit. You know, OSIRIS-REx is us. You know, we're taking those sensors out deep into the solar system. Those are our eyes. Those are our information that we're bringing back so we can better understand the big questions. Where did we come from? You know, and uh, where are we going? What is, what is our future? And really, are we alone in the universe? When I first heard that, OSIRIS-REx is us. I mean, I, I was floored, and I don't know if you could tell based on the audio, but he was near tears as well, and it, it was an emotional moment for sure, both, you know, thinking about who was lost, but at the same time, what we as humanity will gain from this mission. So I thought that was absolutely spectacular. Yeah, even just listening listening to the answer to the question, I'm thinking the same thing, and I remember a couple of years ago, someone asked me, what's coming up that you're most excited for? And I was like, oh, OSIRIS-REx. And I was asked why, and I was like, well, the principal investigators at the University of Arizona, and that's where I did my undergrad, so bear down. But also because that it is investigating the origins, like where do we come from, who we are, I think he put it as, you know, realizing the impossible. So just even listening to that now, it just, it gives you goosebumps to think about as you said, Sawyer, Osiris-Rex is us. I mean, that was so poignant and so well put. Uh, for a man near tears, both from joy and, you know, sadness in that, it was absolutely spectacular. 
So among the other things that we got to do, we learned a little bit about ISRUs, which is in situ resource utilization. Basically, it means using the land. So if you were to go to the moon, go to Mars, mining it to get metals and to get fuels and things like that. So they were talking about a few very interesting concepts. One of them that they mentioned is a mission that they're planning for 2020 that will go to the moon. When it goes to the moon, it will have a drill on it, and it will drill into the surface and attempt to find things that are rich in hydrogen and oxygen to possibly turn into water. On board, it will actually have an oven, essentially, that will bake it and attempt to create water or fuel or things out of the resources on the moon. They talked about a few problems with that, of course, being that you have to find somewhere that is rich in resources, that is in constant sunlight, but is near the shade, which is where there's most likely to be ice. A lot of things still working on with that. They had a lot of 3D printed parts in place of actual parts that are still being built. The other interesting thing was that they were discussing how are we going to actually get this onto a rover. And this might surprise you. Boy, I sound like clickbait. This might surprise you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but they were talking about getting a partner on board. And one who they've already had about five or six meetings with is Taiwan. Wow, really? Not really heard of Taiwan getting into the space game, but apparently they are extremely interested in partnering up with NASA on an ISRU mission to the moon. You know, one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit about ISC coming up next week later, but... One of the things that astounded me when we went to 2014, my first one, was how many places want to get involved in all kinds of space exploration, and you have no idea. Just as a general comment, I had no idea how many like small nations and developing nations actually want to get into space. It's quite a cool thing. The more that join, the better. Oh, yeah. Because the other thing they were talking about is, well, why not partner up with one of these new age launch companies that are trying to get these smaller things up and other rovers. The problem is their rover that they're looking to build, because of how big this drill is, and it took up almost the entire length of a table. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good size comparison for it. I can't at the moment. But about the size of your typical folding table that you might get at a camping store. And they're looking to stick that onto a rover about the size of a golf cart. So we're not talking these small little rovers that some of these other people can handle. Because they were talking about what about private launch providers too. Problem is these smaller companies can't fit a golf cart sized rover on top of them. But it's just amazing to see what they're trying to do with that. Another thing that they had highlighted there was being like Mark Watney and growing potatoes and other plants on those surfaces. And one that I found extremely interesting was talking about turning trash to gas. So it's basically taking all of the resources that are currently aboard the International Space Station, things like that, and turning them into hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, things that can then be used to actually help feed back into the environment. A little similar to the waste recycling system that they currently have on board, but this is capable of doing food packets and other types of waste. And the examples that they had were food packets, the mags, the maximum absorbency garments that they use on spacewalks, and just, you know, everyday trash to take that and using plasma, essentially, to superheat it up and get the gases and recycle them. So, yeah, truly like the ultimate recycling program. 
Yeah, and they're looking to get it to be metals, organics, salts, everything, to be able to sort through that and get usable gases out of it. That's pretty amazing, Sawyer. Maybe, I'm sure, because I'm sure if they were talking about in-situ resource utilization that they talked about this a little bit, but maybe for some of our listeners who may not follow this, why is that important? Well, as of right now, for every pound of stuff that you bring up into space, it costs about 10000 U.S. dollars. So for every single pound. So think about it. You know, if you have a cell phone, that could be a good two or three pounds. That would be $30,000 to launch your phone to space. That's crazy. Now imagine trying to bring up all of the essentials that you need. Water, fuel. And if we're talking about to Mars, you're talking enough water and fuel things for two to three years. Yeah, you were just talking about, I mean, that price is like to go to the ISS, which is a lot closer. (laughs) Exactly. I can only imagine the cost would go higher if we start talking about going to the moon or Mars. So they're talking about having just enough fuel for you to get to Mars. And then once you get there, there will already be a little robot that does the mining and processing for you. So you just hook up a tube, refuel it up instantly as soon as you land, because that's one of the safety precautions that they have to meet. And then head back if there's an emergency or just chill there. And when you're ready to launch, you launch. Isn't that just a wonderful vision of the future? You know, fly your spacecraft to Mars, and when you get there, there's just a little robot waiting to help you fuel up. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely changes the concept of filling station. (laughs) (laughs) As of right now, New Jersey and Washington are the only states that are full serve. Add Mars to the list. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was New Jersey and Oregon, by the way. Oregon, you're right, sorry. (laughs) But yeah, I can just imagine Wally with a gas pump. I love it. It is. It's a wonderful image. That's the kind of stuff that starts to feel very like Jetsons come to life somehow to me. (laughs) Like much more than the actual Jetsons feels like it could come to life. There's these little (laughs) bits and pieces like that. You know, like the idea of a robot just waiting to fill her up. Yeah. Uh, But that was a really cool talk. And the woman who was discussing that aspect of it also was one of the participants in NASA's study, Mars, their Mars isolation study that they did in Hawaii. So oh, it was also really interesting to talk about. Yes. Very cool. So that was absolutely spectacular. I didn't think anything could top that until about 30 minutes after that talk. <laughs> in which case, we were expecting a special guest. We knew there was going to be a special guest. But it's nothing like when you're hanging around a desk, talking to some of your fellow press people. All of a sudden, you turn around and into the press room, in all of his bow-tied glory, walks Bill Nye the Science Guy. (laughs) Nothing can beat that. The best part was, he stopped pretty much directly in front of where I was, so I got a front-row seat to Bill Nye, and uh, my childhood was fulfilled. So that was absolutely spectacular. In case you don't know, Bill Nye is also the head of the Planetary Society. And, uh, in fact, that day was his anniversary. I mentioned that to him, and he, uh, I was going to ask him a question afterwards, but he kind of took over with that. So, before we go into a little bit about what he said, I'll just play for you his reaction to the Planetary Society anniversary, and then the question I got to ask him. Hi, Sawyer Rosenstein with Talking Space. Uh, first off, congratulations to the anniversary of Planetary Society. Yes, this is my, you guys, today, 8th September is the 6th anniversary of me being CEO. Congratulations. And and I'll get to your question, but just understand, when I took this job, it was at at a board meeting dinner where there was a lot of wine. 
<laughs> I thought, well, I'll do it for a year and so on, but it's been just cool. So it's been six years. The Planetary Society is growing. We're the world's largest non-governmental space interest organization. You should all join. Uh, check us out at planetary.org. Your question. <laughs> the question is, how does a mission like OSIRIS-REx help you know, the Planetary Society as an outreach tool? Oh, is it not? Well, we are helping NASA, is the way I look at it. We are helping the world know the cosmos and our place within it. That's our mission. Empowering people to be part of missions like this. And there's just something fun about putting your name on a spacecraft, following our excellent, I think, world-class journalists as they describe the mission uh, from a citizen's point of view. So it's, it's good for everybody. And then just really emphasize how reasonably priced these missions are for making these extraordinary discoveries. And as I say, space exploration brings out the best in us. And so people want to be part of it. And that's what the Planetary Society provides for you. I don't care about me. It's you, you, you. No, but we did. We have half a million people whose names are on there. And they're on there because they just want to be part of it. Our uh, very own Gene Mikulka, I should add, was one of those people whose name is on board that spacecraft, too. I'm not sure if anybody else here had their name on board. I did. I do. Yeah. There you go. So we got a whole bunch of our names <laughs> included on that. But, yeah, and when he talks about, you know, the financial things, one thing he emphasized, and that I think is worth emphasizing anyway, is that this mission, OSIRIS-REx, came in $70 million under budget. How many missions have you ever heard of that come in under budget? It's so rare. It's so, so rare. <laughs> Not only is it under budget, it's under budget and now on its way to send back a piece of an asteroid. Doesn't get more awesome than that. I keep coming back to this idea of we're going to fetch a piece of asteroid on purpose, not because it's hurtling towards our planet and breaking up in our atmosphere and we go find it in deserts and places. No, no, no. This is literally on purpose. This is a whole different thing. <laughs> I love sample return missions. There, you know, this isn't the first sample return we've had from no. from outer space, but they're just they're so special and they're so exciting. And I'm going to be impatiently waiting. I mean, I think we all are. <laughs> Understatement of the year, right? <laughs> yeah, which uh, was pretty spectacular. Of that sample, by the way, this was in an earlier discussion. I'm going to jump around a bit with this one. But they're going to be bringing back about 40, I believe it's uh, about 60 grams or so, little, maybe 100 of uh, sample material, somewhere around there. Of that, they are expecting to use not even a fourth of it, is what they were saying, I believe. And they're going to be storing the rest of it away so that future scientists can always come back and keep studying that material as we learn new things. Which, that's supposed to return 2023, by the way. And, that, and the thing is, that's really important because, look at, we're still finding total breakthroughs from the moon rocks brought back by the Apollo program. So, it's amazing to be able to bring back enough that it can be socked away we have technology now that you couldn't even dream of in the 1960s to analyze material so can you imagine what it's going to be like 50 years from now i can't and that's what's amazing right and totally in line with with that earlier clip we heard about you know the purpose of these missions isn't just to do the mission but also for education and outreach in the future 
Exactly, which I think is the perfect lead-in to the fact that the asteroid, originally named 1999 RQ-36, boy, doesn't that roll off the tongue, <laughs> didn't get its name by chance. It got its name through a competition by the Planetary Society, in which it was named 101955, or Bennu! The person who selected that at the time was nine years old. His name is Mike Puzio from North Carolina and uh, believed that the thing that was actually going to grab the sample called the Tag Sam and the solar panels kind of looked like the neck and wings in drawings of Bennu, the Egyptian mythical depiction of a gray heron. I'll let him talk about getting to name Bennu. He was actually there with Bill Nye talking about it. Well, the name of the mission is Osiris Sorry. Rex and Osiris as part of Egyptian mythology, and I thought to look for something along the lines of Osiris. So I looked up uh, things to do with Osiris, and Bennu was what he came to Earth as after he got killed by his brother. He it's was a heron. A heron, a bird. Yeah. And uh, there's herons here. Coincidence? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> so uh, normally you might know when you fist bump you blow it up. <laughs> but not for Osiris-Rex, it's sample return. Are you going to be the spacecraft? Yeah. And I'm the asteroid? <laughs> <laughs> cool, nice job, man. Yeah. Right. So cool. That's a Osiris were grabbed. And I'll make sure that uh, that picture gets included in the show notes. Basically, you know how when you fist bump, you kind of like bump and then you pull your hands out like a five and kind of like explode? Yes. What they did was they recreated what the actual capturing of the sample will be which is they kind of go slowly up against each other for a few seconds and then slowly back away from each other so they basically kind of like how the spacecraft is going to high five the asteroid they kind of did that to each other which was really cool <laughs> i love it i wonder if someone's made that a gif out there because that would be really hilarious someone has better have made that a gift i mean i took a million pictures you could probably make a gif out of it take a look in the show notes at that picture it's really really cool so that was uh, how Bennu got its name from that naming contest, and how convenient that it happened to be a kid as well. It was not rigged that way. Anybody could enter. So Bill and I was talking about some other amazing things of, you know, how this mission basically is going to hopefully answer two of the most essential questions. Where did we come from? And how did the universe start? <laughs> things like that are potential questions that this could answer, and it's extremely important to learn about that, because these are some of the most fundamental questions. And he also went to talk about Europa missions and how he believes we need to go to Europa because for all we know, there might be European fish people under the ice. <laughs> uh, apologies to our European listeners. We are talking <laughs> European, not European. <laughs> it was just really great to see Bill Nye. He brought up something really interesting. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this later in the show. But I just want to put Bill Nye's response out there right now. He was asked about SpaceX's recent failure. While we were down there, we actually got to, during rollout, we were at a little mound, which is right by the Astronaut Beach House. If you know the Kennedy Space Center, that is pretty much smack dab in the middle between Space Launch Complex 41, which is where the Atlas V was, and Space Launch Complex 40, which is where SpaceX launches from. So we got an up-close-and-personal view of SpaceX's blackened top of their launch pad and blackened top of one of the uh, lightning towers that was actually slightly leaning about 
a few days after the incident occurred, which pictures, again, there's going to be a whole slideshow of them in the show notes. I'll make sure that gets put in there because it was pretty spectacular how much damage there was. And if not, I posted them on Twitter. He has the mission Solar Sail 2, which is a planetary society mission scheduled to launch aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 Heavy. He gave us a bit of insight from within SpaceX of how they're looking to recover from this. And it sounds like it's going to be flying pretty soon. The recent explosion, I'm really sorry. It's not an explosion. It was a fast fire. <laughs> yes. The recent fast fire. Uh, I don't want to shock you with this language, but it sucked. Uh, and it was very expensive. But those people are going to pick themselves up and figure this out. They'll do the failure analysis, which may be different from last time. But they'll figure it out, and they'll be ready to play. And they, we spoke with a couple people, several people there today. And you know, I don't know if you got the story. They're going to have a new core, the Falcon Heavy core, using uh, with reused boosters on the side. Whoa. Wow. Kinda, I mean, that's, you know, a swagger. So we're very happy about that. But because uh, of the great success of LightSail 1, and the support of our 52,000 members around the world, you should all join. Uh, we're ready to go. LightSail 2 will be ready to go. It's the same spacecraft. They figured out the software problems. And uh, it was, LightSail 1 was made with parts that had been taken apart and put back together a lot. But this is, LightSail 2 is great. And so we're really excited about it. So Falcon Heavy, bring it on. We are, for those of you who don't know, we're a secondary payload. So they still, they told us today, they're still planning to launch in November. I'm not a SpaceX spokesperson, but that's hearsay. Launch in November, and then we would launch, we would be on the second rocket in the spring. We're through the ELENA, uh, Educational Launch of Nanosatellites. So we're ready to go, and our members are very excited about it. So, I mean, if Bill Nye says it, it has to be true, right? So it sounds like... SpaceX is going to go ahead with the Falcon 9 Heavy launch in November from Pad 39A with two reusable, two space-flown, or space-proven, flight-proven, I think is the term they're using, cores on the side with a new Falcon 9, essentially, in the middle. Because the Falcon 9 Heavy is basically just three Falcon 9s strapped together for the most part. So it sounds like they're planning on doing that in November and then having the second launch with light sail in sometime in the spring. So even with that accident, it sounds like they're still getting ready to bounce back very quickly, according to Bill Nye, at least. Not to get too far off of OSIRIS-REx, so I can always go to this later if we prefer, but this is not the first time that Bill Nye has been somewhat of a, um, I'm trying to think of the best word to use here, of a unofficial spokesman for SpaceX, although he did take pains to say that he wasn't and I just, it kind of struck me as amusing in some ways because when SpaceX announced their Falcon Heavy, they were going to have Falcon Heavy, Bill Nye was somehow involved talking about that because they were going to launch a mission on it and talking about how it was, it was really great because it was going to be more affordable. And uh, he used the example of OCO, which I actually attended the launch of OCO2, which happened because I believe the payload fairing failed to separate for the original OCO, which is the Orbiting Carbon Observatory. Yes, uh, that's what happened. Oh, thanks, Cassie. I'm so glad that you know as much about that as I do. We actually, 
we'll talk about later IAC, but at uh, the first IAC that I went to, Cassie helped me out and co-authored that paper on research of NASA socials and their impact. But he criticized the mission for the cost and the cost that was lost. And he actually um, used incorrect numbers. And I think that's why it stuck in my head, because I remember watching this and and Bill and I was speaking about it and speaking about SpaceX and and use it sort of as a platform to criticize the cost of other launch vehicles versus SpaceX launch vehicles and criticize the loss of this of the satellite. And then to hear him talk about issues with the first light sail, it's kind of like, OK, well, <laughs> it's interesting how you frame it. And, and I'll just leave it there for now. Yeah, he's uh he can be very interesting when it comes to what he says, and uh, <laughs> I guess he's a bit of a SpaceX groupie, although if they're launching his satellite, I don't blame no, him. No, no, absolutely not. And it's certainly not a rare trait these days <laughs> to <laughs> for people to step up and be sort of unofficial spokespeople for SpaceX either. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Oh, yes. <laughs> We've seen so. your comments. We know. <laughs> uh he also did mention the election. I'm not going to play exactly what he said because it's a long clip, but uh, he did mention that he spoke to a meteorologist who believed that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was absolutely irrelevant to climate change. Let that sink in. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has nothing to do with climate change. Except for the fact that it has a lot to do with it. I was going to say, so Bill Nye said that it... What? <laughs> I'm a little... Bill Nye I'm spoke a... to a meteorologist. Yeah who told him that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has absolutely nothing to do with carbon dioxide, or has nothing to do with global warming. Now, here's the thing, is that you can find a person to say just about anything. I mean, that's part of why there's a lot of climate science denial, because there are some people in that field who are willing to state such positions, but they are extreme rarities to the point where climate scientists agree on things like carbon dioxide's role in it more than scientists agree on whether smoking can kill you. So there's pretty good, uh, there's a lot of consensus on climate science, but you can still find outliers on all of it. But what he was hinting at is that basically when it comes to looking at who to vote for this upcoming election, he said they both have pretty good space policies. However, when you're deciding on who to vote for, take a look at their climate stance, their climate change positions, what, what they believe when it comes to the climate. Thanks for, thanks for that context, Sawyer, because <laughs> after kind of being yeah. dumbfounded of, of like, oh, so, <laughs> yes. I needed some time to elaborate, but I wanted it to sink in of how ridiculous yeah. that sounded. Yeah, no, I totally appreciate the context. I'm thinking like, yes, I can find just about one scientist to say any idiotic thing. Uh, yeah. Right. So he's saying take a look at what your politicians say as well, because they may be just as idiotic as that scientist. May. Well, that, yeah. Okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, out of context, wow, that's just... Well, like I said, not a shocking statement that you can find one who will say that, because, yeah. But certainly important to... However, he... Yeah, but no, it's certainly yeah. important to think about, because... It is. You know, we, we don't often talk elections just because we're not the forum for that, but the position that our president did our next president will be to influence policies that affect things like climate change. It's very important to consider if, if these are important issues to you. 
particularly when we're talking about NASA, of course, because their Earth science budget is a major part of things like tracking climate change and studying it. And so whoever is in office, um, you can't just look at how they feel about space or the random comments they make about space. You have to look at their comprehensive policies to really suss out what their priorities are going to be when it comes to space. I agree. Which is important, too. The other important thing that I mentioned along those lines of what you were just saying is that when it comes to whoever's going to replace the president and whoever's going to replace this Congress uh, as election cycles come and go is that we need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, you've been, you may have been dealt a terrible hand, but you still got to play it instead of scrapping the entire thing and starting over, which NASA's already done once uh, with one presidential change. And with the second one about to happen with Orion now, his big thing is, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you change where it's going, if it goes to Europa, Mars, Moon, whatever. You've already got a rocket that's just about built. You've got a capsule that's already been tested. Don't throw it away. Work with what you have. Well, I think that's less of a concern this election cycle than it was perhaps in, in, when we saw the scrapping of Constellation. Just because we have everything and it's in much later stage development, you know, SLS even has a proposed mission, which is very helpful in actually getting it to come through. And so hopefully I think that it's going to be a little bit less of an issue. However, knock on wood. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) One can only hope. This is the problem with space being, space issues being decided by politicians. (laughs) Yep. But that leads me perfectly into my final comment that I'm going to make here about my time at the OSIRIS-REx launch. We got to see the EM-1 Orion capsule, which as of right now is not a capsule so much as it is a shell of a capsule. But the aluminum main structure on the interior is built. They will be adding wires to it shortly. Right now, though, it is wrapped up in saran wrap, essentially, so I want to stick it in my fridge and leave it there a few days, but apparently they wouldn't let me take it home. It's in a clean room. Oh, surprise. (laughs) But uh, I got to talk to them about, you know, the capsule, which they made some changes to. They've made it about 4,000 pounds lighter. They learned a lot from EFT-1. For the heat shield, instead of doing individual honeycombs that they have to fill one by one, they're going to be doing groups of ablative material, essentially kind of like space shuttle tiles, where they'll glue it all together into one large heat shield. So I thought that was really interesting. interesting. Oh, yeah. And I imagine that's helping them save on weight. Oh, yeah, definitely saves on weight. They moved a lot of the instrument packages and removed some weight with that by carving it into the body instead of having a section for it. And uh, they're in the process of getting ready next year to finish the capsule. And at the same time, that is the expected arrival date of the first European Space Agency command module, which they already have all of the things set up for in the clean room to accept it and get ready to mate it. But until then, they're working on finishing up the capsule. Of course, the goal is to have that done by 2017, ready to launch 2018, with EM-2, the first manned flight that'll go around the moon, in 2021. If you recall, a few episodes ago, we talked about the Office of the Inspector General, the NASA OIG report that was put out, that basically said, yeah, Orion... SLS, all that, they are nowhere near on schedule. Their budget that they got, that they said doesn't match up, the timing that they said doesn't match up. And someone thankfully asked about that while we were there. You will hear the response from Scott Wilson, 
who is NASA's manager of production operations for the Orion program, in his response to the NASA OIG report. See, what we do is internally we plan the 2021. That's our internal program commitment. All of our schedules and our day-to-day -day work plans all lead us to that date, and, and we believe we're on track to that date today. Now, uh, what, what we do also is we do some risk assessments of what things could, you know, could uh, interfere with that or what you know, things could hit us in the schedule. And then we do a projected date of kind of a worst-case external commitment, which is the date. Yeah, that's the one you'll see in the JCL. That's a 2023 date. So we're, within the program, we're committed to, to 2021. We think we're on track there. Um, now, that said, our external commitment, um, if, th if things, you know, somehow we slipped or there were changes in some way, our external commitment to Congress and the President is 2023. So, so does that, do you depend on Congress providing additional funds over the next few years in order to reach the 2021? Some of that difference you see between 21 and 23 is based on um, assumptions on uh, continued funding at the current level, congressional levels, versus the, the president's budget levels. And so that's one of those risks that leads to uncertainty, and there's differences in that. So. So that's a little scary when you hear that the reason that they're saying uh, 2021 until 2023 as a range is because of funding. It's a little scary. Yeah, usually what it does come down to, though. Well, you know, it's like this. We got world-class professionals that are running what is essentially a hobby for the United States government. <laughs> I've never heard it put quite so well. That is the best description I've ever heard of it. So uh, that was their only response to the OIG report, but I still think it's poignant to note that basically they're saying, yeah, Congress and all these oversight agencies, you're saying that our numbers are a joke. Well, we are only using the numbers we're given. So <laughs> give us more money, we'll be able to give you a more solid answer. But they did say that after that, they are planning to, once they get into full production, have at least one Orion capsule ready per year. That is NASA's number. They said Lockheed Martin may give a slightly different number after their contract expires, after EM2, whether they choose to renew it or not, but they're planning on one uh, capsule per year for Orion. I'm hoping that their plans come to fruition. I think we all do. But uh, I just wanted to give a big thank you to everybody at the NASA Kennedy Space Center Press Office, as always, for another spectacular launch and for all those amazing accommodations that we could give you that awesome information. And go OSIRIS-REx, go to Bennu, or dare I say, hashtag to Bennu and back. <laughs> Love it. But now we are going to go to Mars and back. We've got quite a few Mars stories coming up. I think we'll swim on into this first one here about <laughs> lakes. Who doesn't love swimming in a nice lake every now and then? What about one on Mars? Well, according to new data, you may have been able to do it more recently than you thought. Mars has been believed to have a wet period in time, about 4 billion years ago, when there were lakes and rivers and all sorts of bodies of water on the surface. However, new data from orbiting around Mars shows that some of these lakes may have been wet billions of years earlier than thought. I mean, we're still talking about 2 billion years ago, but compared to 4 billion years when we thought was the wet period, to still have lakes on Mars, that's a pretty big deal. It and is. not just lakes, but huge, crazy water systems. <laughs> yeah, and although perhaps still cold 
Yeah. <laughs> the evidence suggests that these weren't flowing rivers and lakes the way that we would think of them today, but rather probably snowmelts. And they were able to adjust the time looking at features like impact craters uh, helped to, to see that these were actually much younger features suggesting that later period of wet time than the one that we're familiar with, and important evidence for our research of Mars climate. Um, I think it was put really well by the NASA Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter project scientist Rich Zurich at JPL. He said that it's a key goal for Mars exploration is to understand when and where water liquid was present in sufficient volume to alter the Martian surface and perhaps provide habitable environments. Their paper presents evidence for episodes of water modifying the surface on early Mars for possibly several hundred million years later than previously thought, with some implication that the water was emplaced by snow and not rain. So, exciting. Really exciting news and information. Exactly. And when we're talking about the size of these lakes, they're saying that some of them are about as big, if not bigger, than some of the Great Lakes in North America. So that's pretty big. And if you've lived in any cities that are near any of those lakes, it can get pretty snowy. So to think of the snow falling like that and, you know, next to these big lakes is kind of a cool thought. Yeah, anybody who's lived near, like, a snowy mountain or something, you know, where where you have not just the snow melt, but, like, the crazy waterfalls mm-hmm. that they cause and things. I, it's It sounds like it was pretty intense back then. Yeah, I mean, and anyone who's <laughs> who dealt with, what was it that Buffalo had this year and their, their lake-effect snow? <laughs> My senior year at Syracuse University in New York was 135 <laughs> inches of snow, so yeah. <laughs> but it does make you understand when you think about right here on Earth when you have that snow melt and how much it carves our features over time it's amazing how much it can explain about things that we see on mars that we haven't fully understood this can explain quite a few of those features potentially so now we just have to figure out how it got unfrozen enough to create this (laughs) oh yeah at one point in time (laughs) exactly because you know what we might find out that mars story of things like lost atmosphere and, and mass you know, global scale climate change could be our story. So it's important to know. Yeah, in fact, climate scientists are studying what we can figure out so far about Mars history for that very reason. So it's interesting because, of course, it's, it is, well, quite far away, it is right next door. Very true. And, you know, it was a little bit of size, a little bit of not having all that magnetic field, but just Mm -hmm. change the environment a little bit. You never know. But different causes can create a lot of the same effects, too. So understanding what happened on Mars can help us understand the worst of what might come. So it's very interesting. Exactly. We're talking about having the amount of time since we thought there was flowing water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if it is by billions of years from four to two, that's still, in science terms, that's a lot. And it's not always just learning about, you know, studying Mars and kind of using that as a way to study Earth. We also do studies here on Earth to help us kind of get an idea of things that might be happening or have happened on Mars. And I believe scientists have actually made a breakthrough in a study here on Earth that might affect Mars. Right, Kat? 
Yeah, that's correct. So scientists studying rocks in the outer Hebrides, which are off the coast of Scotland, have found evidence that seismic activity in rocks produces richer concentrations of hydrogen. As we all know, hydrogen is an important building block of life as we know it. Uh, and so this process could also be taking place on Mars. We know that because Mars has seismic activity, as even does our own moon. So, luckily for us, a mission will be headed to Mars soon, uh, actually delayed from a launch this year, but the NASA InSight lander, and it will be able to observe and measure some of these processes that could answer questions raised by this recently published finding about the possibility of life on Mars. Basically, what they did, and it's really great, we'll have to put in a link so you can see some of the pictures, but if you look at these rocks that are affected by seismic activity, the friction that happens produces richer concentrations of hydrogen, and, and it's it's really stark. You can kind of see sort of variation in the slices of the rock and, and how the rock looks. It almost looks like there's like rock breaking through rock. Yeah. That's the only way I can describe it, is rock trying to break out of other rock. Or if you're it's familiar incredible. with, um, there's a Japanese art form, and the name... The name of the art form escapes me at the moment, but they take broken pieces of like ceramic or pottery and they fill the inside with gold and put them back together. And it reminds me of that. The breaks in the rock are highlighted. It's, it's really interesting. They're very beautiful. Sometimes science is just as beautiful as it is interesting. I couldn't agree more. Exactly. And I was lucky enough to get to see Mars Insight while it was being tested at JPL. That is one cool looking spacecraft. And uh, hopefully the science is even cooler when it comes back and things like that. It'll be really interesting because we, while we know that Mars has seismic activity, we don't know that much about it. So this lander is going to be, while it's got a very, you know, sort of a relatively narrow mission compared to some others, it, what it's going to return should really change our understanding of Mars and our understanding of what we're going to need if we're going to go there. So it should be really great. Two years. And of course, then we'll still have to wait for actual results, but these, this was quite a fine cat. They, these pictures are absolutely stunning. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I was really excited to hear about it. You know, Cassie, you mentioned about InSight having a rather narrow mission, and what's really fantastic about NASA in general is they've launched a lot of spacecraft and landed some rovers with really limited or really narrow missions, and they have all pretty much been able to go beyond their primary mission and also do other things that they weren't necessarily intended to do. So yes, InSight has a narrow mission, but that doesn't mean that we can't expect its mission to encompass more than we can think of right now. Oh, absolutely. And and my, my main point was just that, you know, sometimes we talk about a lot of missions, both giant and some that are more narrow, some that are more long ranging and far reaching. And it's just every mission is just as important. That, that was more of the point I was trying to make is, is even missions that aren't necessarily the biggest, most popular, most broadest range of goals sometimes answer the most important questions for us. Definitely. Oh, yeah. And I mean, hopefully this will be some spectacular science that will be eye-opening to a lot of people down here on Earth, because I, I can think of a few people right now that could use some eye-opening when it comes to Mars science. Uh, I can think of about like 500 of them right now, plus. Uh, thankfully, there will be a chance for some of them to have their eyes opened a little bit. Uh, 
this week. And hopefully by the time this episode is out, their eyes will have been opened, right? Cat? Yeah, so uh, tomorrow, actually, we're recording on Monday, September 19th. So tomorrow there will be a briefing in Congress that's scheduled Humans to Mars, Why, How, and When. So we'll bring together NASA and industry professionals to share with Congress both the importance of Mars exploration and its feasibility in the coming decades. So it should be really exciting. We can all watch it live. You know, unfortunately, not very pertinent news to our viewers, but hopefully it'll bring up some interesting things that we can discuss on our next episode. And of course, it's so important to know what Congress is learning. So it should actually, even if we feel like we already know this, it should be interesting to see how, the, how it's presented. Because obviously we're quite dependent on the people who attend that. Very much so. And, and you know, and these are questions that won't be answered in a day, but hopefully um, it actually is really closely related to some of the work I'm doing in my PhD and my dissertation and we'll hopefully be able to answer some of these questions. So in a couple years, if all goes well, fingers crossed, we can discuss what my dissertation felt. So, you know, we're talking about manned missions to Mars and all that. That brings us to SpaceX once again. I know I mentioned a little earlier we would come back to that because we had Bill Nye basically saying it sounds like November is going to be the return of the Falcon. And that's what it sounds like from everything we've been hearing that SpaceX is going to attempt to fly again in November. However, if you take a look at the pictures on the website or on Twitter, Slick 40, where they launch from, is a little toasty at the moment. It's going to take a little bit of repair work. Heck, Antares up in uh, Virginia, their launch pad 0A took a few years to get back. So we don't know. But thankfully, they're renting out launch pad 39A from NASA. So it sounds like we will have a Falcon launch, whether that's a Falcon 9 or a Falcon 9 Heavy is yet to be seen, but a Falcon launch out of launch pad 39A sometime this year, the first time that pad was used since July 2011. And once again, we learn the lesson from space that redundancy is a very good thing. <laughs> you really, well, you know, you really want two launch pads. Well, I was also going to point out that, <laughs> that SpaceX also has a launch facility at Vandenberg on the West Coast as well. Yeah, they certainly got options, that's for sure. But to see a launch out of 39A again, maybe of the heavy, would be really yeah, cool. Yeah, I know. We it won't really know. would be. We won't know, though, until we hear from Elon, which hopefully he'll be talking about, along with his preview of the manned mission to Mars that he's planning, which we're talking about possibly one manned mission to Mars every 24 months is what I'm hearing. So Elon Musk this weekend, uh, this past weekend, started talking about his Mars colonial transporter for crewed missions to Mars and then sort of teased that, oh, this will be able to go, you know, far beyond Mars. So perhaps we should call it something else for his stated goal. And, and SpaceX has planned missions uh, in the future. They're very interested in getting crews and getting humans to to Mars with the Red Dragon, as as it has been called. And he spent the weekend sort of teasing these plans for crewed missions to Mars and beyond. And it sounds like he'll be previewing that at this year's IAC in Mexico. So uh, would you happen to know anything about IAC, Kat, Cassie? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we're, we're, we're this, will, this will be 
my third year presenting, Talking Space's third year covering, and Cassie's first single authored paper at the International Astronautical Congress. So we're very excited to say that not only will we both be presenting original work, but we will be covering it on behalf of Talking Space, and we will both be in the room when Elon Musk makes his big announcements, and we'll see whether or not he decides to address the incident that occurred. Indeed, but if nothing else, we'll learn a little bit more about the MCT or whatever they end up calling it <laughs> if it goes beyond Mars. But uh, yes, three years in a row, Talking Space will be there, and thanks to both of you, and we're looking forward to uh, hearing your report when you guys get back. And we are very excited and, uh, to, to share it, and you know, I'm sure... Sawyer will remind everyone, but definitely we will we will be covering this on our social media accounts as well. And Kat, what this this year? Now you've done different things each year. You had the first year, of course, we did our paper together on the on hashtags and NASA's use of hashtags, um, particularly focused on OCO two. And then last year you did a thing on STEM and the humanities. So this year, what's your topic? This year, I'm looking at future U.S. policy considerations beyond 2024, um, which is the current end of our commitment to the International Space Station. And I looked at some legislative documents uh, and some other policy documents produced by the United States, along with last year's IAC Heads of Agencies Plenary, and did some qualitative research on policy statements and what they may indicate for the future of international cooperation. And Cassie, you are doing your first paper, and I'm really excited for this. And I know it's something that you'd kind of wanted to do for a really long time. And tell us a little bit about what you'll be. Well, honestly, I never thought I would do something like this in my life. <laughs> like, ever. <laughs> never. <laughs> um, literally, when uh, you, well, Kat, uh, told me that there was a section that might suit me. Told is it's being very polite. I think I, I, I poked her a lot with yeah. a stick through the, through the interweb. But, but literally about two hours before the deadline for abstracts. So I whipped up an abstract, and it was shocking when they took it. Because my paper is on um, something, I don't want to call it way less serious, but I'm obviously more on the outreach side. And anybody who remembers my first appearance in Talking Space and remembers my song Bake Sale for NASA will get this. My paper is called Folk Space, Using Music to Advocate for Space to the Voting Public. So I'm looking at ways that I've personally done that and how it can be used not just as a solo grassroots effort, but how people outside of the space industry can be used to reach the voting public that the space industry cannot reach because they can't go into the spaces where the voting public already is. They need the public to come to them. So I can go out to the public in a different way. So that's essentially what my paper is about. So anybody who's interested in solo grassroots outreach might have some interest in learning more about what I found, which we'll talk about next time. Yes, and looking forward to hearing that next time, but that means we're all going to have to wait until then, because that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Cassie Tamanini. Thank you very much. Uh, very excited. So glad you got to go to the launch. Can't wait to get to Mexico, and can't wait even more so to bring back some great reports. I'm glad I was able to bring back these reports from uh, Kennedy, and can't wait to hear what you guys bring back, including our next person who I have to thank, Kat Robison. 
Thank you so much. I'm really excited. Can't wait to share what I've learned at IAC as well as what I learned from an event I'm attending right after for international students. So it'll be it'll be a lot of fun stuff to share, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, give a unique perspective to our listeners. Looking forward to that. And of course, we have to thank one of our silent friends here, but when speaks, boy, does he make an impact. Thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Later. <laughs> Again, impactful. <laughs> it's the quiet ones you always got to watch out for. <laughs> and of course, I would like to thank you, the listener, for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. <laughs>